Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are giving them a big, beautiful Christmas present in the form of a tremendous tax cut. I am for the largest possible tax cut that they can pass. Do you know who's going to make the most money out of this? It's projected to be Wells Fargo. It'll be a big event. It'll be the biggest tax event in the history of our country. Let's face it. This is a tax proposal that is just a payoff to rich donors to the Republican Party. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who finally got a bill to sign, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And this is my last show of the year, not the last Trumpcast of the year, but the last one I'll be doing in 2017. And that would seem to require some kind of end of the year summation, which I don't think I have in me. How about a long sigh? That sums up my feelings. <sighs> But I do want to mention something that worries me and something else that I'm hopeful about as we enter year two of the Trump era. What I'm worried about is the stick to of the resistance. When Trump first proposed his ban on people from Muslim countries entering the United States, there were spontaneous protests at airports around the country. The ban was rejected by the courts, and a second version of the travel ban was rejected by the courts as well. But when the administration came back with a third version, the Supreme Court upheld it. And this time, a couple of weeks ago, there weren't demonstrations in the streets. The resistance got worn down. I think we saw the same thing with the tax bill. Back in the summer and early fall, people rallied to save the Affordable Care Act, which went unrepealed by a single cliffhanger vote in the Senate. But that oppositional energy just wasn't there for the tax bill which includes an effort to wreck the ACA by repealing the individual mandate. This time, there just wasn't enough pressure on the few persuadable Republican senators like Susan Collins of Maine and John McCain of Arizona. If Susan Collins thinks she can get reelected in Maine after voting for this aid to dependent real estate investors bill, she just hasn't gotten enough calls and letters and people demonstrating outside her house. But what I'm hopeful about is that Trump's opponents do seem to understand that what ultimately matters is winning elections. Doug Jones, our new senator from Alabama, and Ralph Northam, who will be sworn in as governor of Virginia, were both really excellent candidates. And thanks to a single-vote recount, Democrats are now 50-50, despite the disadvantage they face in the horrendously gerrymandered Virginia Statehouse. The new faces that Democrats are running for congressional seats in 2018 are, in general, of amazingly high-quality candidates. 
far higher than they've had in decades. Democrats winning the House in 2018 is the key to stopping Trump's most dangerous abuses and keeping him from undermining American democracy. Nothing's more important. And I think the chances of stopping Trump have been going steadily up as his support has dwindled and his opponents have gotten more focused. Coming up, the national security strategy Donald Trump released on Monday. Does he agree with anything in it? I'll compare the document to the speech with Slate's Fred Kaplan right after these messages. I am pleased to welcome back to the studio Fred Kaplan, who writes about foreign policy and military affairs for Slate. Fred, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. I wanted you to come back on the show, Fred, to talk about President Trump's national security strategy, which he unveiled in a speech on Monday. And I have it here in front of me. It's a sort of formal and official looking document uh, covering a range of subjects. What is a national security strategy? Right. Well, this was unusual in a few ways. First, usually the president doesn't come on and give a speech after it's released. It's a 55-page, this one is longer than most, 55-page document, and then Trump decided to talk about it too. This is a document that administrations are required to submit to the Congress periodically. And it originated in the mid-'80s with a lot of other reforms, and the idea was uh, look, we have a big defense budget, a big State Department budget. There should be a White House statement saying what this is all about. What is our national security strategy that presumably is driving these budgets? And this is your big chance to say, here's the yeah. Bush doctrine. Here's right. the Obama doctrine. Yeah, here's you, how we think. Here's our framework for yeah, thinking about If you it. have a doctrine, this is where you'll state it. Mostly these things – Nobody, you know, Robert Gates, when he was Secretary of Defense, was once asked about it, and he just said, I, I, "I've never read one." <laughs> so most people don't. So we were talking uh, earlier this week on the show about what, Trumponomics. What's the Trump doctrine? MAGA, yeah. MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. Made America great again. That's it, exactly. But here's the interesting thing. Yeah, but talking about doctrine, like there was a Bush national security strategy that mentioned preemption. Right. As a, and that was a big thing. After September 11th, and that right. was written by Condi- Condi Condoleezza Rice, was, Rice was big, and that was a real that, – so that was a real and theory was, of the case yes. articulated in the document. That's right. And that was a shift from an earlier national security strategy which talked about we need to return to big, big power politics you know, and, and old kinds of strategies. So then in 2010, Obama came out with one which talked about uh, that he was reducing the role that nuclear weapons play – in national security policy. And that was believed to be the prelude to a declaration of a no first use policy. In other words, we wouldn't, uh-huh. but, which never happened. But I mean, but it, 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 set, it queued up certain priorities. And so the ideas of a president or the people around him have an idea, this is where you state it. The interesting thing about this national security strategy, the 55 page document versus the speech that Trump gave afterwards is that they're completely different documents. <laughs> I mean, it's very bizarre. Different policies. They don't, he doesn't agree with himself. He doesn't agree with his exactly. own policy. So the, 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 the document, which was supervised by Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the president's national security advisor, 
who shortly before he became that, uh, before he took that job, had been giving talks and papers about the world as an arena of competitions and, you know, power is the only thing that's important and where is the next battlefield and so forth. So that might be, if Trump agreed with it or yeah. had read it, that might be a kind of Trump doctrine, that's a right. Trump approach and, to and foreign policy. And in policy. fact, you know, he talked about in the document China and Russia as revisionist powers who are bent on uh, goals that are hostile to American interests. And he talked about, uh, you know, an attempt to erode American security and prosperity, to undermine legitimacy of democracy. Okay. This is, this is the document. The document. This is, so this is what McMaster says. Yes, yes. And what does Trump think? What did Trump say about way, that? And speech? by the way, the, at the beginning of this document, there's a little introduction signed by Donald Trump. So, you know, he's like, you know, putting us down. What Donald Trump is saying, he says nothing about this. <laughs> at one point, he did say... Uh, he referred to, uh, yeah, he said that Russia and China seek to challenge our values and wealth. Nothing about undermining democracy. And then says, but we must seek to create a great partnership with these countries. And then he, then he went on to brag about how he'd just been on the phone with yeah. his buddy Vladimir Putin and he'd helped to prevent yeah, some CIA, act of terrorism Trump in St. Petersburg. Putin had helped, thanked him for the CIA helping him defuse some big terrorist attack. And he said, that's how this should work. And the only thing that the, uh, the document uh, uh, conceded in this light was, and this is a quote, the United States stands ready to cooperate across areas of mutual interest with both countries. That's different from a great partnership. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that one of these things is right and one of them is wrong or which one is right and which one is wrong, but these are two diametric... It's not just subtle differences. Right, and just to be very clear, the document says explicitly that that Russia has attacked American democracy and is in competition with us, and Trump doesn't say yes. that. He says we're cooperating and are going to be great friends. Yeah, and the other thing is uh, the, the document talks about Russia's cyber campaigns but doesn't say that they've attacked us. It doesn't say that. So maybe the White House, you know, that is something that we now That know. was part of it that they did read carefully. And yeah, re- yeah, that's right. Or, or they got a directive. You will not say in this document that Russia, you know, interfered with our election. That's on the list of banned words that's, that's along, with, banned along with fetus. That's right. Yeah. You want to lose your job. Uh, but, but look, the whole point of – if these documents have a point – it is to clarify to the rest of the world, not just Congress, because foreign foreign governments tend to read these things much more. I, I had a, a, an old professor who used to write uh, annual statements kind of like this for the Defense Department. And he, he told me that once a Japanese defense minister was asking him about some phrasing in this year's document that was a little bit different from the phrasing in last year's document. And he, my old professor told this guy, he goes, I think you're reading this more carefully than we wrote it. <laughs> so, but, but they look It's a at little these, like you've got the term paper due. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it guides your everything right. you do. But the idea of this is to – the whole idea is to give some assurances mm-hmm. and warnings to the rest of the world. This is what we hold dear. This is what we value. This is how we see the world. This is how we see our commitments. And if you've got the document saying one thing and the president saying another, what do you do? And in that situation, if McMaster or 
Secretary of Defense Mattis or Secretary of State for as long as he has the job, Tillerson, goes to Korea or whatever and says, no, don't worry. This is We have your back. This is what we're doing. You know, if I'm the foreign minister of South Korea or Japan, I have to ask myself, okay, what in terms of what the United States is going to do in the crunch, who, who's the operable person? It's a great question. Is it do Tillerson it, or is it Trump? It's Trump who's going to make the ultimate decision, right? right? And he's saying something very different. So if I'm gauging the whole, you know, 90% of foreign policy, of American foreign, of any superpower foreign policy, is management. It's maintaining the relationships. You know, crises happen once in a while. The main thing is going out and spreading goodwill or warning, whatever it is. It's management. This is a basic failure in management. You're giving not just what might be called, you know, strategic ambiguity to the rest of the world about what you're up to and what you're going to do, but sheer confusion, not even ambivalence, contradiction. And so if I'm thinking, okay, can I, can I count on the United States? Or if I'm China thinking, if I do this in the South China Sea, am I going to face trouble? Uh, the combination of this document and Trump's speech leaves you nothing but befuddled. And befuddled in this kind of world is maybe worse than saying nothing at all. Right. So I don't know whether to believe what Trump said, yeah. the letter he just sent me, or neither. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Which, which is very or much an what option. What he said today or what he said last week. Because one thing about this document and the speech, one thing they had in common, particularly the speech, is very focused, of course, on attacking his predecessors. And, exactly. you know, the guide to policy is that everyone before me yeah. got everything got, wrong got because it all they're a bunch of idiots. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is fix everything and, and do it right. But, of course, that's not that's not the reality either. The reality is mostly continuity yes. with the policies of his predecessors because there is no alternative when it comes to dealing right. with China in, in, big, in the big terms. Yeah. U.S. Yeah. interests are pretty clear. And if you want to maintain them, there are certain basic things that you have to do. But even some of these basic things are, are who knows? I mean, you know, uh, for a while, I, we all thought that, you know, Trump, who used to diss NATO at every opportunity because there's, you know, they're, they're lazy, they don't provide for their own defense, they don't pay enough, that went away for a while. And then about a week ago, he gave that speech in Pensacola where he's going on about, you know, these Scuff laws. He doesn't use the word scuff laws, but you know, but uh, you know, we pay four percent of for the defense. They only pay one percent. What's it going on here? Why should we protect them? And in this speech, and uh, you know, the the the, uh, the 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 document says one of our greatest strengths is that we have these allies. This is you know, it's Trump in a former speech looked at it as a transactional thing. You give us money, we'll protect you. The document like. Most previous administrations are saying, no, this is a good in and of itself. This is a sign of our strength that we have these alliances. But in Trump's speech, uh, you know, he, he said, yeah, it, it's a great thing as long as they pay up. I mean, he, he didn't let it go. It's a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding. He thinks NATO countries send us a check, right? That was kind of weird. In his speech, he talked about how they, they need to start reimbursing. They're starting to reimburse us for the defense. And I'm thinking, That's not what we want them to do. I, we want them to spend more. Yes. I mean, he yeah. said this before, too, and it makes you wonder if, if he's had this explained to him. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not that, OK, hey, we, we sent, uh, you know, two tank divisions to Europe. 
pay up for the fuel costs. It's not how it works. You Each country has its own defense budget. Yeah. I mean, he likes to talk about autonomous countries, right? Sovereign nations. You have your own defense budget. Then there are these NATO councils, and you kind of set a goal of how much of your gross national product you're going to spend on defense. And also, you do interoperable things. You, you make sure there, there are very detailed committees that make sure that, you know, you've got rifles that, you know, our, use our the bullets same work with their guns. Yeah, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. And that the that the logistic chain, you know, can can, can service the, the French tanks and the Belgian tanks or whatever. Uh, but no, that we don't get re- we don't get reimbursed for, for doing something that is in our interest. Uh, also, you know, let me just point out, this is a little, getting in the weeds a little bit, but his he, he complains, he said, you know, Germany's only spending 1%, we're spending 4%. Well, first, Germany's spending like one and a quarter percent, which may sound like a little bit, but it's 25% more than 1%, right? We're spending like 36 but... We have not encouraged them to have an independent nuclear well, that's true deterrent. Too. Yeah. But, but also, but we, only about half of that 3.6 goes to Europe. You mm. know, we've got commitments in the Pacific and the Middle East. So if you look at it, how much are we spending on Europe? We're all spending about the same amount. It's mid to high 1%. And, you know, it doesn't really mean, it's, it's a goal for rhetoric. I mean, if your GDP goes up, does that mean that your defense budget should go up? If it goes down, does it, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, it's like tithing. It, and it doesn't really matter. The idea, it's the idea of tithing, whether you give... 10% or 8%. The idea is you give something. You, you have a commitment. It doesn't address the subject of, is this enough for what you want to do? What is it that you need to do in NATO? And is what you're spending enough? You know, there, there's one thing that's been lost. And, and I, I, you know, I have to say, I don't write as many columns about this as I used to. With wars going on, people pay less attention to the military budget. What is huh. in this $700 billion military budget? You know, would you be surprised if I told you like 20% of it is for health care? You know, that, that you know, is, is nobody is, you know, we're, we're, we're buying even more F-35 stealth aircraft, which every audit shows isn't all that stealthy a plane. You know, nobody looks at these kinds of issues anymore. Right. You have this crude debate about yeah. more or less, more or, or less, in effect, not... a little more, a lot more, as opposed to how and what. How and what. Yeah. 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 So another big gap between theory in the document and practice is around diplomacy. Mm. Oh, you know, yeah. this is a document I, in, on my cursory read had all of the familiar things to say about how important diplomacy yeah. is and how, how seriously we take our uh, State Department diplomatic corps. In practice, they have gutted and neglected yeah. it to an extent that is astonishing. No, they were giving buyouts to the diplomatic corps. They've announced their, their new hires. They, they, they suspended the hiring freeze, but they're only hiring about one quarter as many new people as they used to. It, it, I, I noted yesterday, Trump finally nominated an assistant secretary of state for Far Eastern Affairs. And it's this very professional foreign service officer who has... That's one of the five most important jobs in the the, State Department, right? Especially, it might be one of the most important, given that we have this crisis going on with North Korea now. Uh, And she's very good, and she's been at the acting job all these years. And now she has the imprimatur of being actually a spokesman for the administration. But almost every other second-tier policy job in the State Department and the Pentagon is unfilled. Not just unfilled, but 
These are positions that have to be nominated by the president, and he hasn't nominated anybody. I mean, you know, like undersecretary of state or defense for policy, assistant secretary for northeastern affairs, assistant secretary for African affairs, assistant, you know, that kind of thing. They this is are, the management committee. These are the people who run. These are the people who who run run the world for the State exactly, Department. Where, yeah, you know, like you know, I I know someone who used to be assistant secretary of state for Far Eastern Affairs. Said he was on the phone with one of his counterparts in Japan every day, saw one of them every week, traveled over there at least once a month, and a lot of it is just holding hands. And so why, Fred, why hasn't Fred appointed these people? Is this because he wants to run foreign policy himself from the White House and doesn't I, want it run from Foggy Bottom? Or is it some other just kind of neglect well, and hostility towards diplomacy in the State Department? Well, you know, there there is this long tradition of right-wing hostility to the State Department. Yeah. You know, they're filled with communists or homosexuals or whatever. You know, the striped pants. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, but I, I think part it's two it's two things I think one remember Bannon used to talk about we need to dismantle the administrative state this is part of that I think Trump believed that you know if you want to centralize everything then what you do you appoint your own people to all these positions I think he thought that if you just centralize everything in the White House. I don't need all these people. This isn't dead weight. There probably is a lot of dead weight in the state. This is the the supremo positions. You know, this is like you know, uh, you know. Let's get rid of if, if you talk about a newspaper. Let's get rid of the section editors. You know, there are no editors. So these are the people who actually create policy. But I think part of it is that, and I think Tillerson has gone along with it. I think. Because is it accords well with his, you know, he used to be CEO of ExxonMobil and they have very streamlined operations. I think he probably thought that he doesn't need all this second level. You know, in the corporation, you, you don't – middle management is something that, that a CEO wants to cut down on, right? And I, yeah. I think but it's not was, just middle management. As you say, they, the ambassadors are the equivalent of the sales yeah. reps. They're the, you know, they're the ground that's floor true. people. Yeah, we and Trump no hasn't even – he's not even appointing the political flunkies. I mean right. the political contributors usually get sent to you know, jobs where they can't do too much damage. He's done a few of those like his bankruptcy lawyer, which is the ambassador to Israel now, right? Yeah. That's the only ambassador we have in the Middle East, by the way. Remember, when he came into office, he fired all the ambassadors, and he's filled about a quarter of them. And yeah, most of them are these political flunky jobs. And the main allies and the main countries where we have concerns, I mean, even Saudi Arabia, there's no ambassador there right now. What's the scene like in these embassies? I mean, take kind of anywhere in any Asian country, not the frontline places where we're, you know, China and Russia and Korea, but... You know what's what's happening in in Singapore, or Indonesia, yeah. or you know, is it is everything just? I mean, are they deferring everything and saying, yeah. well, we just have acting people in charge, we can't we can't make decisions, but or is know, everything functioning normally? Well, most of the day to day operations of an embassy are, are done by the staff anyway, and done by the permanent bureaucrats there, and and that you know. That, that's happening. Who shows up at the ribbon cuttings? Well, that, that's a good question. I, maybe we don't. And see, that, that's the main thing. If, if the whole idea is to, to reassure your allies, say, and the president hasn't even appointed an ambassador to your country, it's like, you know, well, how, how important could I be if he hasn't even sent one of his people to represent him? I'm dealing with this FSO person who's just, you know, been there forever 
He doesn't represent the president. He represents the Foreign Service. I don't. I don't. I know what they do. I want to know what the president is thinking. And he hasn't even sent somebody to my house. It's like you know, turning down your Christmas party invitation or something. He hasn't. You know, it's like you know, the Godfather. You don't. You don't invite me for coffee. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 it, it's a diss. It's a diss. Yeah. So back to the NSS, Fred. Is your feeling about this, having read it, that? This is a thoughtful document. It would be great if the president read it and even agreed with parts of it. Or is your feeling that actually this is one kind of bad idea different from the bad idea he expresses when he gets in front of a microphone? Well, they're, they're two different. I mean, some of it is. I mean, this of, idea, the McMaster yeah. idea that foreign policy is a field of competition. Yeah. I mean, do you well, how do you respond to that kind well, of thinking, I mean, whether it's going to have any effect on what the, this administration does or not? You know, a lot of this a lot of this read a lot like some paper that somebody like former major H.R. McMaster would have written at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. It's like, <laughs> it's like looking at the world as, you know, like a like a game of risk. And well, you want to come up board. with some phrase that people are going to repeat, yeah. like uh, what is their thing? Um, uh, principled realism. Principled realism, which is uh, is like, that better than realistic principles? I don't yeah, know. or you know, moral amorality. I mean, principled realism. What is this? And then they even define it. They I said, like practical idealism. Practical myself. idealism. That's mm-hmm. a good one. Uh, you know, he said that it's realism because it acknowledges the central role of power in international politics, and it's principled because it's grounded and the knowledge that advancing American principles spends, spreads peace and prosperity. Okay, Tastes both, great and less filling. Both of those statements <laughs> are not just true, they're truistic. And they've been truistic for decades, centuries. And, and the role, you know, most statesmen or diplomats in American history, they, they recognize that there's this tension between our interests and our values. Just stating that there is a tension... Yeah. Okay. What are you going to do about it? What is what is your policy? What is your contribution to something new under the sun or to continuation? To, to, when, when you say sun? truistic, you mean banal and blindingly it's banal. obvious. It's like okay, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. So what are you going to do? How are you going to mesh these two things, which sometimes contradictory? You know, Obama actually, you know, he gave some speeches where he talked about our interests and our ideals, and he gave signs of 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 of, of grappling with those things. And sometimes he succeeded and sometimes he didn't, but he understood that this is something to grapple with, not to just state like, yeah, we have, you know, you know, fruits and vegetables and then not not coming up with a diet. What are you going to do about this? Yeah, you're right. We have interests and values. And we're going to stop feeding the State Department. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's what we're going to do. Stop feeding the State Department and uh, let the president say whatever he and his speechwriters want them to say. And, uh, pretend like this document uh, doesn't exist? Or is it the other way around? I don't know. (laughs) All right. You heard it right here. (laughs) President Trump's new national security strategy, fundamentally worthless and certain (laughs) to be ignored in any case. I've been speaking to Fred Kaplan. Fred, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Although I do have a couple of mistakes to note, with thanks to those of you who fact-checked me on Twitter. I got the title of a book wrong the other day when I was talking to Virginia and Dolly Lithwick. The book is called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It's by Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L. It's a really thoughtful book by an evangelical Christian who teaches at Wheaton College. 
about what went wrong with the movement. I'm also embarrassed to say that when I was talking to Eric Wemple the other day, I misquoted Oscar Wilde. Oh, the shame. Specifically, I misquoted Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest, who, as most of my listeners probably know, said, to lose one parent may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. And on that note about my carelessness, I'm off on vacation. Happy holidays, everyone. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Drumcast.